Well, good morning, Fellowship family. And uh, uh, my heart uh, connects with uh, Kevin and what he said about the state of our world and uh, George Floyd, the COVID-19 virus, and certainly Tim and Jennifer Kelly and just the heartache. Uh, so we lament and uh, I want to lament together as a body this morning. Obviously, um, we're not together in the flesh, uh, but God's word tells us that we are together in his spirit because we care for the things that he cares about. And so I would ask that you would uh, join me, if you would, uh, at home. And uh, let me pray for uh, all those things and more uh, before we get into the scriptures uh, this morning. So pray with me. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, if, if we ever wondered about the reality of Genesis 3, where you tell us that all men are sinful, where Paul writes about how sin infected the entire human race uh, from the fall of Adam and Eve. He, he describes that to us in the book of Romans, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. He goes on the first seven chapters there and he writes a dissertation about all men are sinful. All men and women are sinful and need the life-changing, heart-changing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to see their sin, to repent of their sin, to place their trust in Christ, to forgive their sin. Lord, if we've ever wondered about the sinfulness of man, we, we do not have to wonder about it anymore. Our world is uh, in pain, and it has been, uh, but it's, it's just easier to see uh, over the last few days. Lord, we pray for the family of George Floyd. We pray for his loved ones, that you would comfort them in ways that we cannot even imagine. And we pray, Lord, for, uh, we pray for the injustices done to be righted. Uh, we grieve over his death. Life is precious to you. Every life is precious to you. And Lord, I pray you give, uh, give us and our leaders wisdom when it comes to the COVID-19 virus that we would continue to uh, care for others. We'd continue to uh, certainly be careful, but at the same time, Lord, give us wisdom as we live our lives. And we're grateful as believers. We rest in this. We, we, we gravitate to this. We run to this. The reality is, Lord Jesus, that you love us. You care for us. Our days are numbered according to you, uh, not according to some virus. And so help us, Lord, help our leaders be wise. Help us to follow well when needed. And lastly, Lord, my heart particularly breaks for Jennifer Kelly and the loss of Tim. Lord, we, we know that you brought him home. We know that he knows you. And we know, Lord, it was his time. But Lord, we grieve. We grieve. We don't grieve without hope, uh, knowing where he is with you in eternity. But we grieve for Jennifer and we grieve for her her and their blessed two children. So I pray, Lord, you would also give her a peace that is unimaginable, great comfort. You would make yourself real to her in new and fresh ways. 
Lord, we come to you this morning and pray you would honor your word, you would convict us of sin, you would encourage us, you would grow us, you would change us as we open up the scriptures together this morning. Everyone said, amen, amen in your homes. Well, good morning to you, fellowship family. And uh, as I said in my prayer, we're not together in the flesh, but we are together in the spirit. And if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 16, as we continue to uh, talk about and go through this book of Luke uh, verse by verse. Now this morning in Luke 16, we're going to be looking at the fourth consecutive parable told by Jesus. There were three of them, if you remember, in Luke chapter 15. There was the lost sheep, there was the lost coin, and last week Monty did an incredible job uh, talking about the lost son. And now we have, if you have your Bibles open, the parable of the dishonest manager. Here's what I found interesting this week is that Dr. Daryl Bach, uh, one of the, we've quoted him much in Luke, one of the world's foremost uh, scholars on the book of Luke says this about this parable. He says, this is one of the most difficult of Jesus's parables to understand. I can attest to that. <laughs> Richard Foster puts it this way. He says, it has tied commentators into knots for centuries. Now, after studying this, methinks, I'm not Daryl uh, Bach or Richard Foster, but I do have opinions, methinks it's partly because the difficulty is of how it's written. And so maybe one of my top 10 questions to ask Jesus when I stand face to face with him is, can you tell me why you had uh, verses 1 through 13 written in the way it you did. I, I'm sure, though, maybe by then I will uh, for sure uh, see clearly uh, then where I see with dimmed eyes now. Uh, but the other reason I think is you and I like the cultural context to really get what's going on. Uh, Dr. Bach continues and he says again, the most troubling to interpreters have been the master's, has been the master's praise of his steward's crooked action in Luke 16, 8. And yes, that seems very strange, but I think we'll, we'll get to it. We'll, we'll be able to unpack that and understand it as we go along. So this morning, as we look at uh, Luke 16, we're going to look at the setting in verse 1, the story in verses 2 through 8, and then the significance for you and I of this parable, the implications and applications for us in verses 10 through 13, as we take a look at why Money matters to God. I came across a quote this week that says, What people say, what people do, and what people say they do are entirely three different things. And I'm not sure who said it. There wasn't an author to it. But I can tell you that that quote may never have been truer than when it comes to money. Maybe for our purposes, we could reword it a little bit and put it this way. What God says about money and what his people actually do with his money is sadly often two different things. Money and how we use it really does matter to God. Matter of fact, 
I thought it incredible. I was reminded of this fact that Jesus in the New Testament told 40 parables. One out of three of them had to do with money in some form or function. So money really does matter. Money or our lack of it, if you think about it, it occupies much of our time each day. We spend it, we try to get it, we save it, we count it, we loan it, we hoard it, we stress over it. I think if Willie Nelson was, were singing a song and he was speaking of money, it might be entitled, You're Always on My Mind. So, this morning, let me read our text to us and we'll get started. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager and charges was brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master has taken the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measure of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another debtor, And how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse 9. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails... They may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. <clears throat> you cannot serve God and money. So let's first take a look at the setting in verse 1. Uh, we notice there that the audience has now changed, and once again, Jesus is speaking with the disciples after having primarily in the last end of the last chapter, chapter 15, speaking to the Pharisees. And so the message now has, has switched, if you would, from an evangelistic message to the Pharisees to now one or story or parable that really focuses on those who are chasing hard after Christ, who are focusing or those who are following Christ. So this is a message for us of how we should live our lives, especially concerning money. This is equipping for Christ chasers. And verse 1 tells us this. tells us there was a rich man who had a manager. 
And this rich man, it seems, owned a huge agricultural operation with many people who worked for him. And it was common for a rich man like this in those days. We're just getting the setting and the context to not actually live where the farm was, but to live away. And he was so rich and had so many things to do that he would actually hire someone, a manager, or a synonym for that biblically would be a steward. He would hire them to take care of everything. And we see in verse 1 that the rich man got word that his manager was wasting his possessions. Now, this manager or steward was typically a free man who was well known in the community. And as I said, he had complete control over the entire operation of the rich man. In our story, he's called the master. He's the one who owned the operation. So if you're rich enough to hire someone to take care of everything that you own, the assumption is that he's trustworthy. So my assumption is that the master trusted this steward. But the scriptures tells us, verse 1, that charges were brought. Now that's an interesting term because it literally means a report. It is a report with a hostile tone. And so the rich man got a report with a hostile tone. Charges were brought. It comes back to him that his trusted steward is no longer trustworthy. And he's been throwing away or wasting away his estate. Now at this point, the steward isn't embezzling money yet, but from the text in verse 1, what we really see is that he has been incredible, incredibly irresponsible with stuff that actually belongs to another person, stuff that he's supposed to be in charge of, stuff that he's actually supposed to act as if he does own, but he doesn't own, but he's supposed to treat it as if he does and supposedly turn a profit for the rich master. So that's sort of where we are in the setting. And now let's take a look at the story in verses 2 through 8. What's going on here? In verse 2, the master, upon hearing the news, immediately responds with a phrase that over the years we've become familiar with here, and it is this, you're fired. The rich man says, you're done. You have no job. You're gone. And before you leave, I want you to hang around a few days and I want you to give me a complete accounting of my financial books so I'll know how much damage is done. The steward knows he's out of a job. He knows he's through. He knows he's done. And verse 3 tells us what he is now thinking. Verse 3 sort of gives us the insight of what the manager steward is thinking after his termination by the master. It reads, what shall I do now that I don't have a job? I'm too weak and old to work in the field. He probably looks at himself as too good to do that kind of work. Like he hasn't had a shovel and a plow in his hand for a long time. He's just instructed those who did. And he's been living high on the hog. For years now, he's had a great place to live, plenty of money power, the best food. He's got cloud around town. And for sure, he doesn't want to start plowing and digging with a shovel. And he's too proud to beg, the text tells us. 
He's thinking, what in the world am I going to do? I'm out of, out of a job, and my future looks terrible. My future looks bleak. And then in verse 4, we see that this steward has a, or manager, has sort of a flash of inspiration. He, he gets an epiphany. He gets a vision for what his life could look like post getting fired from his job to the rich man as a manager. He says in verse 4, I know what I'll do. Since I got fired, I no longer have a job. I'll go to the people who did business with my master because these people were also rich and they could also potentially provide him with the lifestyle that he was used to, this high-on-the-hog lifestyle. He's known them for years. He's done business with them for years. So he's going to go to those people so they'll take him in. See, these people not only know him, but they have the means, if the situation gets right, to actually provide for him like the master has been providing for him. And verse 5 through 7 starts to get down into the details of this parable. The unemployed steward now goes to each of the debtors of the rich man, of his ex-master. These folks, again, have been doing business for years. And he says, yo, let's talk to these debtors. He says, let's talk about your debt to what I've called the company JFI, Jerusalem Farms Incorporated. You owe some money. I run this, this incorporated farm. And I want to talk to you about what you owe. The ex-steward wants to make a deal. He, he wants to give the clients of his masters a discount on their debt. And in doing so, here's what's going to happen. He's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread to them. What we don't realize is in that Jewish culture, it was, it was a huge payback culture. The I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine was an unwritten law, but it was the very real law of the land. It's how relationships developed. It's a, uh, you do for me, I'll do for you. It's a tit-for-tat relationship. So he knew that if he gave them a discount, they would owe him something back. So I said earlier that the steward was terribly irresponsible with the master's money, but now he goes into full-fledged, flat-on embezzlement. Just make a note, whether mentally or on your notes, make a note that this now ex-steward is in serious self-preservation mode. He is absorbed and obsessed with one thing. It's himself. He is in survival mode. He's going to take care of himself. So what he does, he goes to the first debtor, and we'll call him Benjamin. That's a good Jewish name, short for Benji, in honor of our youth pastor. He says, Benji, remind me of how much you owe our master. They pull out the contract, maybe. They look at it. Benji says, I owe him 100 measures of oil. Now, to you and I, when we see that, that doesn't mean a thing to us. But I love how Dr. Bach sort of unpacks or calculates for us exactly how much this would be. 
He tells us, and I read this week, that a measure was 8.75 gallons. So 100 measures would be 875 gallons of prime Mideastern olive oil. It would take a harvest of 150 trees to produce this much oil. And this much oil would cost 1,000 denarii. A denarii at that time would equal one day's pay for the common laborer. For the average worker in the Jewish culture, they got paid one denarii a day. So this debt is amazing. It is significant. It is huge. This debt of 100 measures of oil is equal to three years' salary in that culture. So this fired steward or this ex-steward or this ex-manager tells Benji, you know what, I feel good today. I'm going to cut you the deal of a century. If you'll get your checkbook out right now, I'll give you a 50% off discount on your debt. Amazing. It takes away 1.5, a year and a half salary for a common worker. He takes that off immediately with this deal of the century. And you can imagine old Benji, he's ecstatic at this point. He's like, you are the man, Mr. Manager. Then we have a, the story tells us we have a second debtor. We'll call him Daniel. That's a good Jewish name for a, for a male. So here's what happens. The manager or the steward or ex-steward or fire steward he calls Daniel. They come in, they chit-chat, schedule a meeting. And after a few minutes, the fire steward says, hey, Daniel, tell me how much you owe my master. How much do you owe my master's estate? Daniel says, a hundred measures of wheat. Again, I love how Dr. Bach unpacks this for us to, to, to make it make sense for us for today. So, a hundred measures of wheat. You have one measure was about 12 bushels in the way we measure wheat. So a hundred measures was around 1,100 bushels of wheat and represented the harvest of a hundred acres of grain. And each measure, follow this, was worth about 30 denarii. So the total was about 3,000 denarii, which equals 10 years, a 10-year salary of the average worker in Israel. Put in modern day's terms, the average yearly salary for a person in America or in our area is about $50,000. So $50,000 times 10 is $500,000. And the fire steward says, if you'll pay me today, I'll give you a 20% discount. I'll take $100,000 off of your bill. He's working a deal. He worked the deal. And Daniel, again, he's like Benji. He's ecstatic. So here's what the story continues to unfold for us. It says that the master shows up a few days later to see the damage. And I don't know about you, but my expectations would be if the master travels a couple days, comes back to the farm. He hears that the manager has been wasting and, and throwing away his estate. 
he's going to be ticked. He's going to be hot under the collar. And what we see is when the master returns, he says to the manager, he actually says, the master commended or praised the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? I don't get that. I do notice that he did not praise him for his waste or his embezzlement, but he praised him for his actions of shrewdness. He says, you are impressively shrewd. So what does that mean? Why would he do that? Well, the word shrewd means that the fired and crooked steward acted advantageously. He took careful advantage of his opportunity and he manipulated his resources, if you would, in his power to get what he wanted. And so what he's done now in doing that and giving the 50% discount and the 20% discount to both Benji and Daniel, he now has Benji and Daniel where he wants them. They are now obligated <coughs> excuse me, to him because of his great generosity to them. And the manager or the steward is expecting payback from them when the time is right. When maybe his firing comes to full fruition. When he, when, when he steps away from this job after giving this full financial account, he's going to need a job. And I bet you the first place you're going to go to is Daniel or Benji. So this steward or manager has sort of picked off the debtors one by one. And now he has a wide range of employment options because of what they owe him. There's no doubt, says that your text, the dishonest manager and other versions. One says the crook manager, the parable of the crook manager. So what we see here is the steward or manager is sinful, no doubt. He's self-protective. He's a, he's a conniving businessman who is acting for his own good and no one else's. So the master's praise is not that he likes what he sees from his steward. It is praise for the cleverness for acting like men of the world act. He's sort of saying, you know what? You're a thief and you're a liar, but I'll tell you what, you're pretty, pretty clever when it comes to taking care of yourself. It's sort of like we would see somebody being a thief and we would say, if they're a good thief, we would say, you know, that's totally wrong, totally sinful. But how you stole such and such, that's ingenious. That's what the master is saying to the manager. You're self-absorbed, but wow. Man, I don't say you pulled that off. I would have never thought of that in a million, million years. You took care of yourself. And then in verses 8b, the second part of 8b, Jesus comes on the scene with his own words. The story, in a sense, has, has finished, and Jesus adds some commentary. We know that from the first word of verse uh, that phrase in, in 8b, which is four. And Jesus makes personal comment on the story. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, just for clarification of terms, the sons of this age, are not in the kingdom of God. They do not belong to this quickly. They do belong to this quickly passing world. And the sons of light represent or refer to those 
who are in the kingdom of God, who are followers of, of Christ, who are disciples. So Jesus is saying the sons of this age have always been great at securing their own future because that's really all they have. They live for today, for tomorrow they die, and they become worm food. He's saying here the energy and self-preservation strategies and the corruption to take care of their future wealth is like blinking to them. It's as natural as anything. It's as natural as breathing. And that's sort of the message of the world that was true then and that you and I even get pounded with today. Day after day. Get yours and get it now. The world tells us, you want to find life? One great way you can find it. Acquire, acquire, and acquire. Get more, get more, get more, so you can retire. So as John Piper talks about, you can go and pick up seashells on the beach and retire at 65 years old. And then, to our surprise, and we should know better, we die at 66. And it's over. Or maybe we live a few more years and we buy the car of our dreams. And then we get so old, the state takes away our driver's license because we can't drive anymore. Just think with me a minute, if you would, about all the hours and energy that go into thinking and making sure that we make ourselves comfortable at the end. I'm not talking about being smart and saving and, and, and doing retirement. I'm saying all this energy that the world says you got to be comfortable when you come to the end. Jesus is saying that is what the sons of this world live for. That they are so shrewd in taking care of their very brief future, especially in contrast to the sons of light. So, here's what Jesus is doing initially here. He, he's really asking us believers to evaluate, to think about, to really roll around inside of us how wise we are in using money and possessions and wealth to make glorious, glorious our future, which is forever and ever. He's asking us to consider that Think about how this life is like a vapor. And when it's over, it's com compared to eternity, it's, it's, there's no comparison. And, and here's what the world does. Here's what the sons of this age do. They, they work so hard for this vapor, for this vapor, this, this, this time we have on earth, to be what they want it to be. But he's contrasting that, if you would, to the sons of light. Because our life, the life of the sons and daughters of light, is not for this vapor. It is for the age to come. It is for heaven. It is for eternity. Jesus is pointing out that we need to put more energy and time in how we use our money and possessions to affect what our eternity looks like. In light of that, what he does in verses 10 through 13 or 9 through 13, is he gives us three, three points of applications, three things of significance that you and I can take away from this parable. 
is an eternal perspective toward others. It's eternal perspective toward ourselves and eternal perspective toward God. So let's look at the first one. This is where rubber meets the road here. This is where we bring it home to us. We have this setting. We have this story. We have this parable. And we sort of unpack that. Now, now why did Jesus tell the parable? Parables always have a point. Parables always have application. Parables always have a reason behind them. And Jesus gives us three distinct ones this morning. And the first one is the eternal significance of money toward others by making friends. Look at verse 9. It says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And that's part of what's written a little funky here. But let me unpack this. Jesus is telling us to take your money and make friends. Not by giving them a discount, not by buying them something or buying them off, but by using our money to buy heavenly friends. To take this unrighteous money, and it's called unrighteous here, not because money is necessarily bad. Money is neutral, but it has... It doesn't have a righteous value in the sense of itself. It's unrighteous in the sense that it's not eternal. It ends when you end and we can't take it with us. So he said, take this unrighteous money and flip it on its head to invest in and purchase friends who will welcome you into heaven when you arrive on your eternal destination. Here's the picture. You die and you stand before the Lord Jesus And he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And standing on each side of him are are these people who are clapping for you and cheering for you and also welcoming you home to your eternal home. And here's the deal. You don't know them, but they know you. They know you because you use your money and your possessions to spread the gospel. And through that, they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and they spend eternity with Christ, along with Christ and you. It's a great picture. Jesus is saying, if an earthly, conniving, and shrewd guy goes to all that energy and all that manipulation to do what he needs to secure what is his earthly future and what this earthly future feels like and looks like while he's there, how much more should we as sons of light use our resources to plan for our arrival in heaven? The truth of the matter is that all those who trust Christ will go to heaven, but not all of those who go to heaven will have the same welcome. That's the text. Not all of those that go to heaven will have the same welcoming committee or same reward. Someone said you can't take money with you when you die. But while you are here, and this is what it's telling us, you can use it or send it ahead of you to eternity through the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but that's as motivating and foundational a reason for me to give as any. To give so that we can be welcomed into heaven by Christ and to those who through our giving, Christ used our giving to bring others to Christ. 
Your money can transcend the world. That's why in some ways our motto should be give while we live. There's a very tangible return on your investment that lasts forever. So, the significance of this parable, why Jesus told it, the first thing is the eternal significance of money toward others by making friends. The second one is the eternal significance of money toward yourself by being faithful. By being faithful. Verse 10 through 12. Look at verse 10. It's so obvious. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. It's right there in front of our face. The circumstances of how little or much you have, Jesus is saying here, does not determine your faithfulness. Your perspective on eternity and what's really important is what determines our faithfulness. I've heard people say it a million times, and you have too, and maybe you've said it. So there's some need for change here. If I had more, I'd give more. It's not true. And just a very few words here, Jesus makes that out to be a very ball-faced lie. Because it is amazing how people who have a lot give hardly anything, and people who have little give so much comparatively. A person, Jesus is saying, is faithful when they're given when they love the next world more than they love this world. Remember the verse, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to show up. So the question I believe Jesus wants us to answer is, are you and I faithful? Right now, right now where it stands, not if you had more money, but right now are you faithful? Because here's what he's saying here, because he who is faithful when he has a little will also be faithful when he has a lot. Or to put it another way, and Jesus does that in this verse, he who is self-indulgent right now, when he has little, will continue to be self-indulgent when he has much. Verse 11 goes on. It says, if you've not been faithful in how you've invested your money, who can trust you with true riches? Again, Jesus is saying, if you don't invest in eternity now, you're going to bankrupt your eternal reward in heaven. If your life is about creature comforts here, do you expect God to reward you when you come into His presence? Will God reward you if you waste your stewardship on what He has given you? The eternal rewards belong to those who are faithful. And then verse 12. Here's what Jesus does here. He, he really drives His point home here. There's a little sting to this. He says, The faithful use of the money you have check this, check it out, is really not your money. You and I are like the steward in the parable. He didn't own anything, and you and I don't own anything. If Scripture was ever clear about anything, it is clear about this, that God is the owner of everything, and He dispenses what He pleases to His children providentially, and He expects them to take what He has given and use it for the glory of God and for all of eternity. Haggai 2.8 puts it this way, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The famous verse in Psalm 50, 
For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field. They're mine. Here's what God expects. He expects the sons of this age to be incredibly irresponsible, to live in waste, to be selfish, to get as much money for themselves as they can with no sense of accountability from anyone about how they should or would or could use it. He expects that. They're lost. But for us, He has a whole different set of expectations. And this text is teaching us what these expectations are. For us, the sons of light, we can't do this. We can't just use money how we please because guess what? It's not ours. If we are not faithful in using what is not ours, this is what he's saying in verse 12, how do you expect eternal rewards from God? I love what one writer said. He said, that which you look forward to you will not receive. That which we look forward to, eternal rewards in heaven, we will not receive. And then thirdly and lastly, the eternal significance of money toward God by serving Him first. Verse 13. Again, this is so obvious. Look at verse 13. Most of us heard this. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. No servant, which is what we are, can serve two masters. The word there is a bond slave, and no slave can serve two masters. You're going to love one, you're going to hate one. It's, it's impossible. We can either, though, here's the two choices we have, we can serve God and take His money that He has given us and invest it in the eternal. We can serve money and invest it in the here and now. Those are the two choices we have. If your heart is about piling up a fortune here and not being generous with what God has given you, you won't like this sermon. Matter of fact, you don't like this sermon now. You may not be showing it wherever you're watching it, but there's something about it that you're like, that's another pastor. He just wants more money. You don't like what you're hearing. And if that's the case, there's got to be some shift or change here. Matter of fact, I want to show you the climax of this story will be taught by Monty next week. The very next verse, Luke 16, verse 14 speaks about the Pharisees and their response to this message, to this parable and these implications. Look what verse 14 says. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, they heard these things. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew exactly what He meant. They heard these things about money. They are lovers of money and they ridiculed Him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Where riches hold the dimensions of a man's heart, God has lost His authority in that man. A.W.P. the Pink, the great theologian who, if you've read some of his stuff, just so practical, he puts verse 13 like this. He says, These two, God and money, are opposed to one another. 
One seeks happiness in his creator and one seeks happiness in the created. One is ready to distribute and one is ready to hold on to it. Incredible implication for us, especially in a world that pounds us every day that money, money and how we use it is nobody else's business. This cuts countercultural, not only to our culture, but to our own hearts. So here's the so what for us this morning. Money matters because money comes from God's perspective. And here's the deal with money. Money is a test to demonstrate our gospel and eternal concern for others. So I ask this question, what are the signs that money is out of whack for us? What are the signs of worldly materialism? How do we diagnose where we are with God's money? Let me give you a few thoughts as you think about those questions for your so what. We covet. We can be awfully selfish with it. When we put our security in what we possess, we can get a good amount of our worth and dignity from the stuff and possessions we have. Or we have a preoccupation with money. Or we're discontent, meaning we, we begin to lose this appreciation for what we have and what we've been given. And we're seduced by what we don't have. Or by idolatry, by putting stuff over people. In some ways, it's never about the amount of money we have. Jesus makes that clear here. It's about one's heart attitude toward the money that makes or breaks us in this area. So here's the cure. Big idea from this text. After saying all that for 35 plus minutes, what's the big idea? The cure is this. Be generous with all that God has given you and don't forget the source of all you have. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Take a minute and ask the question, so what? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to you and uh, we pray you would do a real sweet work in this concerning money. Money matters to you. You give it to us in your great kindness. You give us all different amounts. But there's an expectation. You expect us as we, because of your great kindness to us to to bring us into relationship to yourself. You expect us to use that money to pay it forward in a sense, to pay it forward to eternity, to use it for gospel ministry, to give and to be generous. Lord, you do promise us that you'll take care of us. Money is this test. It, it, it puts tension between us. It can. It can make us love it or love you. So help us to 
apply this specifically to us, to each person, to the person who is giving nothing but has tons. Lord, break their heart for things of eternity. For the person who has little ones giving a lot, Lord, encourage them and show them very tangibly your provision for them. And to the most of us, probably in the middle, Lord, wrestle with us and move us forward. Help us take the next right steps in this big picture of that money matters to you and how we may be generous with it. We love you. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.